In this passage, as we come to the actual close of chapter 3 in John's account, we've entitled it, Why Must Jesus Increase? You want to remember that in the context in verses 25 through 30, which we, which we exegeted last week and expounded upon, we saw that John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. He had prepared the people's hearts to receive the Messiah, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the arrival of the long-awaited kingdom and the, the deliverance for Israel, he was preparing their hearts with his message. And the ministry of John, though it started slow, had grown. And that ministry of John the Baptist had grown greatly, and the disciples were coming. And even those who, as we saw, Pharisees and Sadducees, were really not coming other than out of hypocrisy. They were coming out to see the ministry, so the, the ministry had the appearance of really growing. And then Jesus Christ, as he arrived, just as we have been singing about this morning and talking about in every aspect of it, John the Baptist, as the forerunner, pointed to Jesus Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God. He pointed people to Christ. He wasn't interested in his own ministry, but he was focusing people on the one who would come after him. That is, Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And he had been identified by John. And then what began to happen is the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously from our context, started to grow. So not only had John's ministry grown, but now the ministry of Jesus Christ was growing. And that presented last week's message where we saw that there was a potential problem that developed in which there was jealousy there. And they were concerned uh, that the ministry of Jesus Christ was growing greater than theirs. And you see that very clearly as you scan uh, the verse, especially verse 26. All are coming to him, as we spoke about that last week. So that ministry was growing, and there was a potential problem. And John put that to rest. John is the forerunner. John, as the person sent by God to prepare the way for Christ, solved the problem if you will, as God worked through him, which the leader needs to do. He did that by showing two things we looked at. Number one, everything that we have comes from God. Let me remind you of that. Everything that we have, there isn't a thing that we have that does not come from God. He allows it and he can take it away. Everything comes from him. Secondly, he also knew his position, very important in the body of Christ. Everyone needs to know what our role is. Everyone needs to know what our gifts are and where we fit in. And John knew where he fit in. It was not about him. He had a ministry, a very important ministry. But it was not to excel that of Christ. It was simply to accomplish the glory of God. And we saw that last week. And then he ended with this marvelous and final statement which summarized it all, which is where we left off, verse 30. He must increase, that is Christ, but I must decrease. And true show of humility and understanding of a position. To let his disciples know that this is not about my ministry. And even if the ministry decreases, and listen, Sunday school teachers, listen, pastors, elders, listen, every believer. This is not about us. It doesn't matter where we fit in or how small and it doesn't matter if God multiplies the ministry and it grows and grows and then all of a sudden it begins to get small. There's no jealousy in the body of Christ or should not be. It should be all about increasing and bringing glory to Christ. And John the Baptist had the right focus. 
And so as we come to this area where it closes off chapter 3 in the continuation in verses 31 to 36, that final statement that John made, I believe John expands on it here now, and he tells us the why. He first of all stated that Christ must increase and he must decrease, and now he gives us the explanation as to why that is so. Why must he increase? And in my personal opinion, in these verses, we have a magnificent passage. Listen, if you don't get it, this is what you want to be looking for this morning. A magnificent passage before us that deals with the greatness of Christ. This really brings out how great our Savior is. This really brings out in these verses the magnificence of Jesus Christ. Remember, there's a lot of people that have a lot of different opinions about who Christ is still today. They did in the Lord's day, and remember, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Because who are people saying? Well, he's John the Baptist, he's, he's Elijah, and so forth and so on. People had all types of opinions, and people do today. Jesus Christ is a, is a good teacher. He was a moral man. He was a historical figure, and they have all kinds of opinions. And yeah, he died on the cross, and he some, you know, did something like that too as well. But this passage really brings out the magnificence, I believe, of Jesus Christ as well. So what are the reasons that he must increase? Well, to get right into it, verse 31, the first reason is, listen, that Jesus Christ is above all. If you want to understand who Jesus Christ is according to the Bible, this is where we need to look. Jesus Christ is above all. First of all, it says in verse 31, and I will repeat that, he who comes from above is above all. And then it says again at the end of the verse, he who comes from heaven. He came from heaven. He came literally out of heaven. That's where Jesus Christ came from. He came out of heaven. This is not new to us. If you look at verse 13 of chapter 3, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven. That's where Jesus Christ came from. He came from heaven. It is also interesting because this is the same term, and I had prepared you for that, that we find in verse 3 and verse 7 when it says that you must be born again. And in this particular case, obviously, it is from above. Is a good translation in verse 31. Okay, and that's why we said you must have a spiritual birth. We must be born from above, not just born physically. And we talked about that. But Jesus Christ came out of heaven. And that passage, that lengthy passage that we had for the responsive reading, part of it was to get you that purpose over and over again. It talked about the bread of life. And it talked about he came from the Father. He came out of heaven. In chapter 17 of John, I'll just read it to you. You can listen. But John chapter 17, the same book, listen to verse 5. It says, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father. Now listen with the glory which I had with thee, now listen, before the world was. Even before the world was, Jesus Christ was there with the Father. In verse 8 of chapter 17, it says this, For the words which thou gavest me, I have given to them. They received them and truly understood that I came forth from thee. And they believed that thou didst send me. It should be very clear that Jesus Christ, his origin is in heaven. He was with the Father. 
He was with the Father before the world that you and I are able to live in even existed. It's important. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the one that before anything was created, he was there. Where? In heaven. With whom? The Father. In total harmony. Even before you and I existed. Before man existed. No wonder he then says in verse 31 that he is above what? Some people? No. Is he above everyone? Yes. He is above all. What does that mean? He is infinite. He is God. Jesus Christ of the Bible. Remember in Corinthians, there was another Jesus being preached. And today, that is true. There are people that are talking about a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. It's a Jesus of their own making that is just one type of person. But when we talk about Jesus Christ, we are talking about an infinite God, God who is absolutely sovereign. I'd like you to turn to two quick passages. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We talk about people believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. When we talk about Jesus Christ being Savior, who are we talking about? We're talking about the Sovereign One. We're talking about Jesus Christ. Yes, He died on the cross, but who is above all. Listen, if you don't understand Jesus Christ in this way, you do not understand Him as Savior. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. Look. Speaking of Christ, he says, which he brought about in Christ, who he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now watch this. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named. Listen to this. Not only in this age, but also in the age of the one to come. And, verse 22... He put all things, not some things, all things in subjection. To whom? Him. Why? Under his feet. And gave him what? As head over how much? All things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, just very quickly. One more verse. Or if you want to listen, you can. Verse 22, here's what it says. Speaking of Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, that's where he came from, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Who's been subjected to him? Angels, authorities, you see? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Jesus of the Bible is over all. He's over angels, folks. He is over the entire universe. That's who Jesus Christ is. He is over animals. And he is above and over mankind. He is not just the babe of Christmas. He is not just a babe in Bethlehem, and that's the concept. But he is God with us. That's what the scriptures tell us. In John, he has said he is the Word and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's who we're talking about in John chapter 3, who is above all. 
It is the one who came from the Father. It is the one who died on the cross. It is the one who rose from the dead. And that same one who came in the stable, that same one who rose and increased in in uh, favor with men and God, the same one who increased in wisdom, the same one who walked on this earth, the same one who was in Jerusalem and in Israel, that same one is the one that created it all. That same one was God who left heaven to come to earth. That's who it is. He's the one who died on the cross. He's the one who rose from the dead. And he's the one who's coming again. And I want you to notice something else. Because of time with the announcements this morning, I'm going to have to give you the reference because I could spend the rest of the morning on this. But I want you to understand that when John the Baptist is saying this, John the Baptist was a Jew. Yes. He understood Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here's the reference for you. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 13. And if I can summarize it for you, Israel knows this like the back of their hand. Hear, O Israel, thy God is one God. One God. And he goes on, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You're to teach your children. And the bottom line is there's only one God. And it's that Jewish mind that is saying to his audience, he's got to increase because he's above all. And I know I can't get involved in idolatry because God prohibited it. Because he's the one true God. That's what he's saying. That's the impact. He is God, very God. Jesus of the Bible is the one that created it all. So he's above all. He's above all. Now John the Baptist, on the other hand, verse 31, in contrast, right in the immediate context, says that, verse 31, he who is of the earth is from the earth. And he speaks of the earth. And he uses the same expression. In other words, John is out of the earth. I believe primarily he's referring to himself, but it has application to any man. We are out of the earth. And he doesn't use the word cosmos here. He's he's not using that world system. He's using the word earth. John or any man is finite. We are from the earth, and all we can speak about, all John could talk about in contrast to Christ, is things that belong to this world, because that's all we know. That's all that he knew. Was he sent by God? Yes. John chapter 1, verse 6. You can mark it down. There was a man sent by God. So John the Baptist was sent by God, but not like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was there before anything was created. He can only speak what he has seen, and that's what he says. So what I want you to grasp out of the rest of verse 31, when he talks about he is of the earth and from the earth, so he speaks of the earth, Listen, no counsel of men, no man that has, ever has been, whether in centuries past or centuries of God tarries to come, not all the intelligence of man gathered together in so-called science, not all the religions of the world can talk with authority about God in heaven because we weren't there. All we know is this world because that's where we have been then how in the world can man try to become so foolish as to try to dictate to a sovereign God how we get to heaven, which belongs to him, or how this got here, which he created? Foolishness of man. And so John, in saying that 
he must increase and I must decrease is making it very clear. Jesus Christ is above all. He was there. I'm only of the earth. And all I can speak is what I know. Oh, I can tell you about God as God reveals himself to me, but that's all. You and I would know nothing other than what creation is able to tell us, and man suppresses that to begin with. But God, through Jesus Christ and through the Word of God, has revealed to what we wouldn't even know that angels exist. Oh, you say, yes, I would. I watch TV. That's foolishness. They don't even know about angels, though they talk about them. And by the way, whatever they do know, they try to get out of here. We don't see them. We weren't here. There isn't a scientist that can say, on the first day of creation, I was there when I was evolving out of the ocean. Really? I don't think so. You weren't there. You can guess where it came from. I would rather have somebody tell me how it got there. And by the way, this is kind of a foolish illustration for you, but I want you to get the point. I happened to be, when I was younger, in Florida in 1971. Well, what does that mean? Well, I was down there playing baseball, actually, in college, and we were down there for spring training, and I happened to go up to a place called Disney World that had just been created. And when I walked in there, in the first year, by the way, it had the appearance that it had been there for years. It did. I was amazed. I walked into this little Disneyland that they called, a Disney thing, and there were trees there. They looked like they had been there for hundreds of years. Then I started reading. Some of them were there just a month. What I'm trying to get at, it had the appearance as though it had been around a long, long time. And I could have said, man, that was neat how the alligators turned into a pond and the pond turned into a tree and the tree turned into... Look, it's amazing. That's what it had the appearance of. But what a fool. I was better to read from the source and say, you know what? He flew over in a plane. He excavated the land. He did, bought this off of farmers. He then escalated, built this, built that, and everything else. And Disney was able to tell me how it got there. That's a poor illustration. But the point of the matter is this. John's saying, listen, I'm of the earth. I can never explain heavenly things. And neither can anyone else. But Jesus is above all. And he can. Secondly, we've got to move on. What is the testimony of Jesus? Well... The second reason he has to increase is because he testifies that God is truth. Verses 32 and 33. What he has seen and heard, of that he bears witness or testifies. And no man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has set the seal to this. What? Here it is. Explanation that God is true. God testifies to man according to Hebrews 1. You can mark it down. In Hebrews 1, he has testified to man in many ways throughout the ages and through many forms and many people. However, in Hebrews 1 through 3, I think it's verse 2 specifically, he says, now he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who is above all. He sent his son, why? To tell us the way things really are. He used prophets and they spoke as God led them. He used signs and he used wonders. Now he's speaking to us through his son. So he can testify. And what does he testify? To that which he has seen, and he's sure of it. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive the witness. That's what he was saying. He says, I know what's going on, John, in the context. And he says, and I'm bearing witness to it. Jesus Christ does the same thing. 
he's able to bear witness to the Father. And what is it? That God is true. In fact, you can, God cannot lie, it says in Titus chapter 1, if you want to mark that down in verse 2. What I'd like to read to you, listen to this, is Romans 3. Romans 3 verse 4 says this. Talking about, uh, should we say that uh, God's faithfulness is nullified? He says, may it never be. Listen, rather let God be found true and every man be found a liar. God's the one that's true. And the testimony of Jesus Christ is, listen, God knows what's going on, and I came to testify. And what John the Baptist is saying is, see, he's got to increase because as much as I'm testifying to the fact that the Messiah was, to coming, was coming, he is the Messiah, and he will tell you exactly what the Father is like and exactly what God's plan is. And his testimony is true. Now, the reaction, if you look at verses 31 and 32, at first, uh, 32 and 33, it first looks like, Everybody rejected it. But I would say to you, the reaction is most rejected it. Why? Because if you look in verse 32, it says, uh, and no man receives his witness. Now, John did not forget what he said in verse 32 when he got to verse 33. And he says, he who has received his witness. He's using it in, a, in the way, in the context, that basically man does not accept what God has said. No man is qualified, first of all, Secondly, no man receives it unless God opens up the understanding. And I want you to see this very clearly. Verses 32 and verses 33 clearly point out universal salvation is out the door. Because men do not want to receive it. That is true today. Men don't want you talking about Jesus Christ. Men even say, you can pray as long as you don't close in Jesus' name. That's our country. Men will say, you can talk about religion provided you leave a general but don't talk about Jesus Christ. Men don't want the message. You can talk about salvation. You can talk about getting to heaven if you're going to talk about all the religions of the world. Why? God's the one that knows how I get there. It's his heaven. God sent the message, and through Jesus Christ, we find out that there's only one way. And man gets what? Back. He wants to suppress that. No way. And so man does not receive it, except that God opens up the understanding of men. Very, very few, and I want you to see that. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 for a second. Some of, for some of you, this may be new to hear this. What do you mean, there's only one way to heaven? Absolutely. You say, well, I don't know, Fellowship Bible Church, you think you've got all the answers? No, but I think the Bible does. And it doesn't matter what any religion says. It doesn't matter what any man says. Listen to what God says. God says this in Matthew chapter 7. I want you to see it, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the what? Narrow gates. Why? For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to what? Destruction. I want you to catch that this morning. It's broad the way that leads to destruction. And watch this. And many, many... Many are those who enter in by it. There are many people that are entering in the wrong gate. Verse 14. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads, watch this, to life. You want to find life? You want to find eternal life? Stay with me for the rest of the message this morning. But the point is this. And how many find it? Few. It's not many. This isn't... 
you know, painting. It, the concept, listen, you live in the United States of America. The concept in the United States of America is that everybody's a Christian. Don't kid yourself. There are many that are sitting in churches, and there could be many sitting in this church, for all I know, that are even making profession of faith and say they're Christian, and they're not. You want to see a frightening statement? Go to 21. Not everyone who says to me, that is, they say, you notice this? Lord, Lord, they're saying basically Jesus Christ is Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, isn't this interesting? How do they end up justifying the fact that they're saved? Do you ever look at verse 22 close? They don't justify the fact that they're saved by saying, Jesus Christ died for me. They justify themselves by good works. They justify themselves by saying to the, in verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, we have done this in thy name, what? Prophesied. And in your name we have done this, what? Cast out demons. And in your name we have done what? This, perform many miracles. It says, and that's the evidence, by the way, that they're not saved. It says, we've trusted in Christ, he's my Lord, and I'm getting into heaven because of everything I did. Really? My message was you only get into heaven because of what Jesus Christ did. That's why it's narrow. And it's only one way. We're going to see that as we get to, in there to John. And so all of this, to go back to verses 32 and 33, there are not everybody accepting this way. In fact, man rejects it, and it's very possible. You're sitting here right now saying, wait a minute, you're telling me Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven? Yes, I am. Well, that's pretty narrow, and I don't like it. That's your issue with God, because that's God's message. Believers will testify, and that's really the context of verses 32 and 33, and I don't want you to miss that because I wouldn't do justice to the text. In the text, he's saying believers testify to the fact that God is true. Every man's a liar and God's true. A true believer who is trusted in Christ will testify, and that's what it means in verse 33, to the ones who have believed. They have this seal that they are testifying that God is true. He's truth. He is truth. Believers certify to the truth. They testify to the truth. And God must do the work in their heart because none of us would be a believer without it. So we must move on. Jesus Christ must increase because he's above all. Jesus Christ must increase because he testifies to the fact that God is true. To true excuse me. Thirdly, he must increase because he has the fullness of the Spirit, verse 34. Let's look at it. And he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. For simplicity, I'm going to summarize a page and a half of my notes this way that there is no limit to the spirit that's given to Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Because he is God. He's God. That's the simplest thing. It's pointing to the deity of Christ. The spirit is given without limit. People have been filled with the spirit. They've been led by the spirit. They've been empowered by the spirit. They've been inspired in the writing of the God's word by the spirit of God. But Jesus Christ, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, you mark it down, is the fullness of God. That's who that babe in Bethlehem was. That's why this was God with us. That's why his name's called Emmanuel. That's why he's the savior of the world. This was God. The fullness of the Godhead is found in Jesus Christ. There is nothing lacking. There's one spirit. There is no sin in Jesus Christ. None. So different from man. On to the fourth one, just so we can move ahead. He has also been given all authority. That's why he must increase. Verse 35. I do want to get to 36 before we close. 
35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Why? Because they were together. They are one as God, separate roles, if you will. Three persons in one God, far beyond any human understanding of comprehension. That's by faith. But he loves the Son and has given all authority into his hand. All authority belongs to Jesus Christ. Go with me to one passage that I know you know. Go with me to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. You need to come to grips with who Jesus Christ is. Not the one that this world paints, but the one that is truly found in the Scriptures, who is over all, who is above all, who has the fullness of the Spirit, who testifies to the truth of God, and who has all authority. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, How much authority? Help me. All authority has been given to me in heaven, and where else? On earth. That's not the Jesus that people want to, to believe on today. That's not the Jesus that people want to talk about today. But Jesus Christ says, absolutely all authority rests in my hand. Even future judgment, by the way, if I were to take the time. In Philippians chapter 2, I won't turn there. It says this, every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess. What? That who? Jesus Christ. What about him? That he is Lord to the glory of the Father. You say, but I'm not going to say that. You might not now, but you will. God's desire is that you do it now and that you know that he's Savior. For God so loved the world, we already said that he gave his only begotten Son. We're going to see in verse 36 in just a moment. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's desire is that you know the God of the Bible that you really know who Jesus Christ is and the significance of his coming and the significance of that death and the significance of the resurrection and of why you need to know that he's the only way because he came from heaven and he's telling us about what it's like and how to get there on God's authority. And you can choose any way you want and try going up different sides of the mountain. You can choose any religion. You can come to Fellowship Bible Church all your life and end up in hell. If you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't see that he's God, very God, because that's who God says it is. We have to see him as the only one that's worthy. That's what we find in the book of Revelation. He's the only one that was worthy. You remember to take that scroll as we've been talking about? We've been away from Revelation for a little bit. But... There was a scroll in heaven, and when John saw it, he cried and wept because nobody was worthy. And he says, wait a minute, there is one. The lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ, he can take that scroll and open it up. Because he has all authority. Because he's the one that God sent. Not the one that man sent. Not the one that develops out of man's mind of religion. But the one who God himself has sent to us. And that brings us to the last thing I want to wrap up and spend a few minutes on. He is also the one that must increase, as I have in your notes, because he's the one and the only one, I should have put it that way, who is able to deliver. Look at verse 36, John chapter 3, verse 36. 
I'm in the wrong book. There we go. John chapter 3, verse 36. Look it. I believe personally someone who's able to read, someone who maybe is a second grader, should be probably first, can understand what this says. Not unless he has his spiritual eyes open, but the, even the English is pretty easy to see. Watch. He who believes in the Son has, help me, eternal life. This does not say, he who goes to church, he who follows this religion, he who does this, he who does that. It says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Contrast, uh-oh, but he who does not obey the Son shall, what's the next word? Not see life. Uh-oh, but the wrath of God. And I'll deal with the bides in a minute. The wrath of God. That's frightening. It doesn't matter. You know what? Put it to yourself this way. This is frightening. You will die alone. You say, Pastor, I didn't want to hear about dying. I'm here because I want to live. Good. But the reality is you will die. You won't die. Oh, you may be in a car accident with your spouse, but you will die alone. You will stand before God alone. It won't matter what anybody else thought. It won't matter what anybody else told you. God has told you through Jesus Christ that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And in this passage, there man has all kinds of his options. God has one option for you. Or actually two if you want to be technical. Believe or don't believe. End of discussion. Believe what? God's message. To believe is to have faith. And it does involve, listen to me, the human will. Yes, I know. God is the one who has to draw. God is the one who has to enlighten. No question about that. But God miraculously brings it to uh, pass by also bringing the will of man to believe and accept Jesus Christ. It is through faith that a person is saved. There must be personal appropriation. No one else can believe for you. Your aunt, your uncle, your, your parents, your spouse, no one. No pastor, no minister, no rabbi, only you or only me. And it is not just believing that Jesus Christ came. It is not just believing that he died. It is not believing that he rose again. But it's for you personally. And when we talk about faith, it's total rest in your eternal destiny into the hands of Jesus Christ, who is God's provision for salvation and satisfying God's righteousness. He says there must be faith in the Son, in the one who is God, in the one who did the work of God, in the one who provided total satisfaction for the justice of God because the wages of sin is death. We are all sinners. Jesus Christ was without sin. That's why he came, because none of us could save ourselves. He came to satisfy the righteousness of God who demands death because of sin. And that's why Jesus Christ died. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. 
You need to see that personally, that it was for you. And I need to spend some time on this just for a second here. It's very important because it's a present active participle here. What does that mean? I'm going to say this for a couple of minutes here. It means in verse 36, he who believes or is believing on the Son. That's very important in our nation today, in our world that we're living in. The concept is continuous belief in Jesus Christ. Not just a mere profession. Listen, this is dangerous. We have parents, we have pastors, we have Sunday school teachers trying to convince people that they're saved. Why? Because they said some prayer months ago or years ago. And I've got it on film. You believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the time they're saying in their heart, I don't know. I don't know if I'm still believing on the Lord. This is a present active participle. The evidence that you belong to Jesus Christ is it's a continuous believing. Don't ever rely on the past. If you have doubts about whether you belong to Christ, it's probably because you don't. It's true. Now, does that mean we can't have assurance? Of course we can. But it's an ongoing thing with Christ. It isn't just a one-time believing, and now I go back into the world and live any way I want. We talked about that. If it's a true conversion, the life is changed. The infinitive is also present. What? Watch. He has eternal life. Grasp that, folks. If you believe, and you're believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that mean? Your faith is in Him, that He was God's provision for my sin personally. And to give you a visual aid for that, when Christ died, there were two other people that died with Him, both which were murderers. One, we know from Scripture, went into the presence of God. The other went to hell. He never got down off that cross and got baptized. He never got down on that cross and helped little old ladies across the street. I don't know why we pick on the little old ladies. He never got down on the cross and did the Ten Commandments. He simply believed on the one, and Christ said, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. He put his faith on the one that was dying, who did not deserve it, according to his own words. Jesus Christ didn't deserve to die. He willingly came to die to satisfy the righteousness of God. And so that faith, believing in him, and putting your eternal destiny in him, it's present infinitive, you have right now eternal life. Don't think of eternal life as something after I die. It's now. Oh, we get the fullness of it after the resurrection when we get the glorified body. But to know Christ is to have life now. Life with God now. Understanding who God is. Walking with God now. And as I wrap it up, in contrast to that, I mentioned the two buts. The unbeliever, that's why we talk about unbelieving. Or we talk about the, the lost or the unsaved. It's an unbeliever. Again, it's a present active participle. He's not believing. But I want you to catch this. Don't miss this. It says, interestingly enough in the English here, but he who does not obey. To not believe in Christ is the equivalent of disobedience to God. You see? That's what it is. You're not obeying God. God told you the way. John the Baptist is saying he's got to increase because he's the one that also provides life. And if you believe in him, that's the issue, you will have present tense, eternal life 
now. Sin's forgiven now. You will belong to God for eternity. However, if you do not believe on him, it is the same as disobeying God, just like you broke the Ten Commandments. That's what it is. Not to believe is disobedience. And what happens then? You shall not see, see life. You won't have it. Oh, you say, but I know I'm going to see my uncle, my aunt, and everybody else in heaven. Really? Show me the guarantee in your back pocket. The only guarantee you have is the one who came from heaven that can tell you how you're going to be there. And the only way you have any guarantee is if you take God at his word and he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It doesn't come any other way. Oh, man is going around in churches today telling people all different types of ways to get to heaven and it's broad way and it's all leading to, as you saw, to destruction. And it's not based upon anything that we do. But the worst part in closing, then I'll end on a positive note, but the worst part in closing on this one, look at the last part of the verse. But the wrath of God abides on him. What does that mean? You know, people sometimes say, have you ever heard anyone say this? You know, I'll just wait till I die. And then, then I'll see if I'm going to go to heaven or hell. Really? The wrath of God doesn't wait for you to die. If you're not believing God, and you're not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, God's wrath is on you right now. While you're breathing God's air. Why? His hatred for God's wrath is explained in Romans chapter 1. It's the unrighteousness of man who wants to suppress the truth. It's the unrighteousness of man who will not accept God's way. It's for the hatred towards sin. And already God's wrath, it's like you've heard me say. People say, I wonder what's going to happen in the United States of America. You're missing the point. I hate to say this to you if it's new to you, but it's true. God's already judging the United States of America. When you see sin increasing and increasing and being allowed in our laws of the land, approving ways that we can sin more, according to Romans chapter 1, we are already under the judgment of God. The conclusion just hasn't come yet. If you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are already under the wrath of God all you're doing is awaiting death for the conclusion of it. It's frightening. You don't have to wait to die. If you haven't trusted in Christ, you're under the wrath of God now. You say, what's the solution? It, rem it remains on you now, but if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the first part of the verse, you shall be saved. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ the only way. That's why John the Baptist says he's got to increase. He's got to increase because he's got all authority. He's got to increase because he's above all. He's got to increase because he has the Holy Spirit in the fullness of it. He must increase because he testifies to who the Father is. And he must increase because he's the only one who can deliver your soul. The real you. I'd like to close by reading to you Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. If you're taking notes, just mark it down. Look it up on your own. But here's what it says, and then I'll summarize it as quickly as I can. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, 
for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And it's rather interesting because there's three prepositions, different prepositions that are found in that passage. The summarization is this. The curse of God is over man. Christ put himself under the curse. And the reason he put himself under the curse was to buy us out from the curse. It's a summarization, Galatians chapter 3. Jesus Christ. We're under the curse of God. We're all sinners. We've come short of the glory of God. God's love was to the extent that Jesus Christ put himself under the curse by being hung on the tree so that he could redeem us or buy us out from under that curse. And the only way you'll be bought from under that curse is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, is to come to Jesus Christ. The appeal of Scripture is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If God's speaking to your heart, believe on him. You don't need to come forward. You don't need to raise your hand. It can happen right there in the pew. You need to see that no matter what man says is the way to salvation and how it can be earned, God's way is narrow, it's simple, it's through Jesus Christ, and it's the only way. And until you come to believe on him, God's wrath abides on you. Trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. And fellow believer, that concept of believing him now is a present thing. We need to demonstrate our belief in him by following him now. Don't fool yourself. Walk with God. Let him have his way in your life. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for the graciousness even of this people I having gone over a little here this morning. Thank you and praise you for your word. Thank you that it's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, even able to discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. I don't know anything about what people are thinking in this auditorium but you know the thoughts and the intents of each and every heart. And we know as the word of God has gone forth that it is truth and that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto you but by him. And I pray that you'd help people to see that they need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to come to him, believe on him, and they will have, present tense, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, Father, if there be anybody here who has not accepted Christ, trusted in Christ, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, help them to see that your wrath is already abiding on them. And the only way that can be shifted is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ so that your wrath was borne by him, accepted by them, and they are giving that life. For believers, help us to see that it wasn't just the past. It's believing in Christ now. It's continuing on with him. It's allowing you to have your will and your way in our life. And I pray that you'd help that with each believer. Lord, we do fall into sin. We do drift away from you. We thank you. You're so gracious to call us back. And help us, Lord, to live with the remaining days for the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.